0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 8th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I've been reading a wonderful book by a guy named Eugene Peterson. You might be familiar with Eugene Peterson. He and I don't always agree on everything, uh, but I find few people that can write Uh, the way that he can write, uh, and the gift that God has given him to open up my eyes to the wonder of who God is and the glories of the gospel. Um, is really unparalleled in how he does it. So I've been reading a wonderful book on him, uh, by him, about the resurrection. And I read this this week, and it just reminded me of why we're doing what we're doing these next few weeks. Peterson said, if you celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead only one day a year, so if you only celebrate the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead one day a year, you are missing something really big. How simple of a way? If you only celebrate his resurrection from the dead one day a year, you're missing something really big. He's right. And that's why we're taking the next few weeks to consider not just the power of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead, but the impact of his resurrection for our lives today, with the aim that we won't be just increasingly convinced that it happened. But if you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that we would become increasingly excited by it, excited that it happened. And so this morning, we are going to go back to John chapter 20, the gospel according to John chapter 20, where we were last week, John's account of the resurrection of the first Easter Sunday. It was just too good to move on. And as we look back at John's resurrection account in chapter 20, we are going to hear from John and find more implications for our joy and our excitement today in relation to the resurrection. Last week, as we considered John chapter 20, We talked about the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead being the foundation of our assurance, that our assurance in the gospel and the promises of God is rooted most securely in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's as though in the physical raising of Jesus to new life from the realm of the dead, God himself was preaching, declaring his yes and amen to all that he had promised. It was God's sermon, so to speak, in raising Jesus from the dead. Well, this morning in John chapter 20, I want us to consider Jesus' first declaration. His first words, his first sermon, so to speak, after he rose from the dead. It's in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. And and in this initial sermon, in this initial declaration of Jesus, we're going to get three huge implications of the resurrection for our life now. So John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So right there, you've got the first implication for our lives today. Jesus wants to talk about peace. And he does it through repetition. And as I reminded the other services, that's always been one of the chief tools in a preacher's arsenal, repetition. So when I repeat myself every single week, you don't have to look at me funny as if I forgot what I had just said. i do it on purpose. Jesus did it, so i do it. Peace be with you, he said. And after he finished saying that, as the Father has sent me, he said, even so I am sending you. And right there, we get the second implication of the resurrection for our lives. Now, there is a purpose that Jesus speaks of for the lives of his disciples. But he's not done. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. There is a power that Jesus gives for his disciples to live in the reality of the peace that is his and the purpose that he has for their lives. A gift of peace, a gift of power, a gift of purpose, all three hinging on the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all three defining realities for our lives now, massive implications for which we ought to be excited. As I was thinking about, well, how do you do it? Do you do all three in one? Do you try to figure out how to tease them all out? Well, what order do you put them in? How do you do it? I came across someone who was trying to do the same thing. And this writer was saying this, and I found it tremendously helpful. He said, you and I need to understand that the opposite of peace is conflict. The opposite of power is weakness. The opposite of purpose is aimlessness. Many many lives today are ruined by conflict, weakness, and aimlessness. Jesus did not come into the world and die and rise again from the grave to ruin your life. He did so to save it. He saves us from ruining our lives by becoming himself our peace, our power, and our purpose. And I began to see how they be fit together. And so in the coming weeks, we will explore this power and this purpose that Jesus speaks of. But this morning, we want to consider Jesus's declaration, his news of peace, because his news of peace is foundational for his news of power and purpose. So the first sermon that Jesus preaches, that first Easter Sunday evening, was a sermon of peace. And that sermon has a context. Every sermon ever preached always has a context. Every preacher is always preaching to a particular people in the midst of a particular time, going through particular things, so he says particular words. The sermon that Jesus preaches on this first Easter evening has a context as well. And the first thing I want you to understand about this context is that his message of peace, peace be with you, it didn't come out of the blue. It shouldn't have come as a shock or a surprise to the disciples. And he repeats himself intentionally for a reason. You see, the last time the disciples had physically been with Jesus, do you remember the last time they'd all been gathered together in one room with Jesus the man? It was just a few days before this night. they had all gathered together in a room to celebrate Passover together. The night that Jesus would go to the cross. And when they had all gathered together that night to celebrate Passover, Jesus spoke to them and and John takes multiple chapters to walk through all that Jesus had said to them that last night that he was with them. But if you go back and you read it, you'll find in John chapter 14, the last time that Jesus was together with his disciples in the room before he would die on the cross. In John 14, 27, Jesus says to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He spoke of a peace that was his, that he was giving giving to them, a peace that could calm their troubled heart. Unlike anything else they could have ever experienced in the world. But that wasn't all. That same night, in that same room, in that same discourse conversation with his disciples, John records in chapter 16, verse 33, that Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. In the world, you'll have suffering. In the world, you'll have difficulty. In the world, you'll have challenge. That's what tribulation is. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The peace that he offers, the peace that he gives, the peace that he is, the peace that he has accomplished is a peace that steadies the heart in the midst of tribulation. This is what he promised them the last time that they were together, just a few nights before that first Easter. And in between that promise and that first sermon where he says, peace be with you, he says something else that links them together on the cross before he breathed his last, Jesus said, it is finished. If the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the ground by which our sin and rebellion against God is dealt with, if all that we specifically talked about last week is true, and we talk about every week when we talk about the gospel, we looked at last week specifically, if it's really true, that Jesus in his life lived in our place, his death died in our place and his victorious resurrection from the dead physically is the ground by which God has dealt with our sin, then it would only be right to expect the next words out of his mouth after it is finished to be peace, be with you. It's what I promised. It's mine to give you. It's finished. I've overcome It didn't come out of the blue. It wasn't a random sermon. It had a context. And Jesus meant it to deal with and be applied in the present circumstances they were facing. He intended for this sermon to relate immediately to what they were going through. They were gathered together in fear their hearts were troubled. They were facing present tribulation because they had followed him. Everything that he promised, the peace that he had promised before he died that would steady their heart in conflict, that would calm troubled souls, that would be an anchor and a rock in the midst of tribulation, that is what they were experiencing. And when he shows up in the midst of troubled hearts and tribulation, he says, peace be with you. He declared this peace to flawed and failed followers. Disciples of his, much like you and I. And he wasn't declaring a peace that was to be theirs someday far off in the future after they had died. It wasn't simply a peace that they would live in and experience after he returned again to make all things right. It was a real peace that they were to experience in measure in the here and now. In the midst of the troubled hearts and tribulation. So what is this peace that Jesus is speaking about? What is it that he's saying? What does it actually mean? Well, quite literally, we'll start with the literal and then we'll work our way through. Quite literally, Jesus shows up unannounced to his disciples, now gathered again days later in the room after his resurrection, and he says, shalom Alaikum." That's what he said. From Jesus' day to this day, that is still the standard and most ordinary greeting in the largest swath of the world. Anywhere you would go outside of this country and the West, if you head towards Central Asia and East, you will find that being the standard and ordinary greeting of people. Shalom Aleichem. Peace to you. But as one writer said, this was no ordinary day. And never, he said, has such a common word Been so filled with meaning as when Jesus uttered it on Easter evening. You see, the word that we translate in English in John chapter 20, peace, is the Hebrew word shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom is used throughout the entire Bible in a vast number of circumstances and contexts. But every single time it's used in all of its varied situations and contexts, it always carries this idea of wholeness or soundness or harmony, or equilibrium, so to speak. Peace, as we translate it and think about it, it only captures a small sliver of the full weight of the word that he speaks. You see, the world that God had originally created was a world that was characterized by this peace, this shalom, this wholeness, this harmony, this equilibrium. God's creation flourished under his authority and under his good word. The relationships between God and his creation were harmonious. That was the world as it was meant to be. It is in every way the world that each and every single one of us long for somewhere in our heart. In every single way, that is the world we each want this one to be. No guilt, no anxiety, no tension, no sorrow, no troubled hearts, no tribulation. And if you're really honest with yourself and you give yourself just a couple of minutes at some point this week to try to conceive of that, you have to admit it's hard to even conceive of. It's hard to really think about what that kind of place is like. But that is what we were designed for. But Adam's sin shattered that peace. Adam's sin tore apart the wholeness of the created order. There's a professor of philosophy at Notre Dame. His name is Cornelius Plantinga. He wrote a fantastic book. Don't be scared away by being a philosopher a for philosophy. Everyone can, accept, can read it. It's called, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Brewery of Sin. And in that book, Plantinga said, in the Christian view, human beings ought to be in awe of God at least as much as, say, a middle school basketball player is in awe of Kobe Bryant. Now, I have a middle school son who plays basketball, and he's not in awe of Kobe Bryant. So who should it be? Steph? LeBron? Substitute whichever one works for you in there. They ought to marvel at God's greatness and praise God's goodness. In the Christian view, a failure to do these things, let alone indulging in outright scorn of God, is sinful because it runs counter to the way things are supposed to be. Sin in itself is anti-shalom, anti-peace, Sin spoils the proper relation between human beings and their maker and savior. But let me also add that sin offends God, not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly, as in an impiety or a blasphemy, but also because it bereaves and assaults what God has made. Sin breaks peace. Sin vandalizes the goodness of creation. Sin brings discord and strife, troubled hearts, tribulations, all present realities because of sin. So again, when Jesus walks into that room on that first Easter Sunday evening, his sermon is laden with all manner of context. He preaches peace. He promised peace he declared its victory, and he preaches peace to them now, which is astounding if you think about it. If you think about the literal reality that Jesus walked straight into their troubled hearts, straight into their confusion, straight into their chaos, straight into their humiliation, straight into the feelings and the things that they were experiencing, that were consequences of sin itself, and he speaks peace. For you, now. John said, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, John said, he showed them his hands and his side. Why do you think he did that? Again, context for the sermon. Why do you think at this point, after saying this twice, Jesus then shows them his hands and his side? He promised them a peace that would steady their troubled hearts, a peace in the midst of all their tribulation. Why? Because he had overcome the world. Jesus was preaching to them now a peace accomplished. Here it is. It's been finished. The victory has been won. Peace. Peace. Be with you. What are the implications then of this? if this is the message that Jesus declares, if, if this is the reality that he intends for his disciples to experience then and now and live out of, what are the implications of this accomplishment, of this peace that Jesus has won and now gives? Well, I know of no better place in the Bible to look at the most foundational, multi-dimensional implications of this peace than Ephesians chapter two. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter two. We will not be able to cover all of the implications of this piece for our lives today, but we can see the most foundational ones in one place. The most significant ones in one place. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 11. And I was telling the nine o'clock service, it is so hard as a communicator of the Bible to start somewhere else in Ephesians in chapter 1. It is the crown jewel, pastors have said for centuries of the New Testament. It might not be the most theologically unique letter that Paul wrote, but it's the most beautiful. So it's hard to kind of jump in in the middle because I want you to hear everything that he said to get there. But I don't have time. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. We are going to see the foundational implications of the peace that Jesus preaches for his disciples' lives today. Today. Therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what was called the the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Apart from Jesus, Paul is saying, remember, this is your standing before God. This is the consequence of sin that has vandalized the peace that God created. But, verse 13, always circle that but in the New Testament letters. But, now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Through his life, his death, his victorious resurrection from the dead. The it is finished. It's been accomplished. Paul says one aspect of what he has accomplished. Of the peace that he accomplished on the cross. The peace that he was victorious in in the resurrection. Is that he has brought you near. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Now, that, if you just slow down and read it, is a staggering statement. Paul did not say, you got to catch this. Paul did not say, Jesus makes this peace possible. Paul didn't say, Jesus makes this peace even probable. Paul said, Jesus is our peace which means the peace that Jesus promises, the peace that Jesus gives, the peace that Jesus is for his people right now and forever is not the product of a strategy that you can put together. It's not the product of some political action that you can pursue. It's not the product of some educational reform that you can bring. He is our peace. And in his peace, Paul says he's already brought us near. But that's not it. Listen to what else he says. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What are the other implications of this peace? He is our peace that brings us near and brings us together by breaking down the hostility that kept us apart. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. What's the next phrase? Next three words. So what? Making what? Who made peace? Did I make peace? Did you make peace? Did we create a committee that can make peace? He is our peace. Peace. And in himself, he has made peace. And he might reconcile us, Paul says in verse 16, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. He is our peace. Jesus has brought us near. Jesus has reconciled us to God. And Jesus brings us together. Take some time this week just to go back and keep reading through Ephesians chapter 2. And take a pencil and circle or underline every instance in your translation, however the grammar works in the translation that you're reading, where Paul stresses the fact that in chapter 2, in what's been accomplished, he specifically talks about it being he did this in himself. He did this for him. Every single time he specifically references Jesus in relation to what he has accomplished. It's staggering the amount of times Paul does this and he does it intentionally because he intends for his readers and his listeners to linger and savor the reality that this peace that has been promised and given has been accomplished and this peace isn't anything that we can come up with or do or create. It is Jesus. And if you go back and consider stacking up all the different things that Paul says Jesus has done, you begin to get a picture of what this peace looks like. Let me just show us real quick in the time that we've got left that you might consider some of this, that it might begin to excite you in regards to the resurrection. Paul says that Jesus, in his life and in his death and in his victorious resurrection, has done what was necessary as our peace to bring us near. Now, I like to think about that, especially as we're talking about John chapter 20, because I immediately think about being one of the disciples in that room that night. Humiliated, frightened, tribulation and troubled hearts, and completely unexpected because I had a hard time believing everything that he had said for three years, completely unexpected. He shows up in our midst. He's standing right there physically next to me. He walks into my troubled heart. He walks into my tribulation and he offers himself to me and the rest of his disciples not as our judge and the failed and flawed followers that we are. But he brings us near and he offers us himself. It's my hands. My side. And he can do that because Paul said that In being our peace, he's done the most foundational thing necessary. Jesus has reconciled us to God. This is the most foundational aspect of the peace that Jesus promises, the peace that Jesus gives, and the peace that Jesus is for his disciples now. Jesus reconciles us to God. This is why he came this is what is at the heart of everything he accomplished paul says apart from him we're separated alienated strangers we're far off we're without hope he tries to help the church in rome understand it by saying you're enemies of god and here's the thing i realized And the amount of time that we try to we talk about the gospel every single week, we're trying different ways to communicate the way the Bible communicates the nature of sin and the impact of sin. We talk a lot about how the Bible says that our sin makes us at enmity with God, enemies of God. We commit cosmic treason. And I think about how that sounds to my own heart that wants to justify itself and how it must sound to everybody else listening. And I realize that if you're anything like me, there comes a point in your own mind and in your own heart where you tend to tune that out because you begin to say, well, you know what? I really have never been that angry at God. When I think about an enemy of mine, I think about some serious bitterness, some venom in me, some thoughts in me and some words that come out of me towards someone else that are intended for their harm. That's how I think about an enemy. I've never thought about God like that. And this idea of sin making us God's enemies, we begin to tune it out but I read something this week that was so helpful to me. And I hope it's helpful to you because it will help us better cherish this peace that Jesus is that begins to spring out in our lives a a peace and a reconciliation beyond even this. This writer said that when it comes to being God's enemies because of our sin, it's not that we consciously hated God. It's that we mostly were oblivious to our own defensive attitudes. If anything we blamed God for not seeming closer to us. I was like, that's it. Alienated, strangers, far off, without hope. Well, that's his fault. That's how my heart, that's how my heart sees it more often. Not that I was his enemy wanting his harm, but I'm sitting here going, it's your fault you're so far away. That did not stop God. And the beauty of this peace, He moved towards us in love. You see, on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God against the sins of His people. He took away the very thing that separates us from God's love, everything that prevents peace. Paul wants to be very clear and make certain that there isn't a one of us who begins to believe that we did anything to deserve or earn this. There isn't a one of us that met God somewhere in the middle, that played a role in this at all. God was the one who reconciled himself to us. God was the one who made peace between us and him, and he did it in his son. He did everything necessary for there to be peace. And so it begins to make complete sense when you see it that Paul would write to the church and say, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've now received reconciliation. The peace that we have between us and God now that Jesus is, is a peace that reconciles us to God. And we begin to live day in and day out in the joy and excitement of that because we realize that nothing good that we do earns any more love from him and nothing sinful that we do ever can lose the love that's ours in his son. The peace that Jesus is for us is a peace that reconciles us to God. This peace is foundational to everything else. But we've got to be honest about it. Not everyone has this peace. This peace is a gift from God. In fact, John would write at the beginning of his gospel, to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul would say in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and, and you would say that you do not know anything of this peace between you and God, that you have not begun to experience this peace through Jesus, I want you to understand this morning Jesus offers you this peace. And this peace is free. And the question he asks you this morning is will you receive this gift? Will you receive this peace? Will you receive him with the empty hands of faith? You have to bring nothing to him to purchase it or earn it. You and I will either receive him or we will walk away from him. But make no mistake about it. He is your peace. And the peace that Jesus is that produces reconciliation between us and God. The peace that brings us near and the peace that reconciles us to God is the foundation for any peace that would bring you and I together. Apart from that vertical peace accomplished in Jesus and offered to us and received by faith, there is no horizontal peace between you and I. It's the foundation for anything that would bring us together. Paul said very specifically that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, creating a new community, the church, by reconciling us all to God on the same terms. There's not certain terms of reconciliation for people born in this part of the world and certain terms for people for reconciliation born in this part of the world or certain terms of reconciliation born for people in this part of the city. Everyone reconciled to God experiencing the peace that is Jesus, receives it by the same terms. The substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Paul says that he is peace between us and others who are in him. You've got to understand Paul is talking to the church here. When Paul is talking about the tearing down of the dividing wall of hostility, the creation of one new man, Jesus bringing people together, this is not some kind of godly strategy for global peace. Ephesians two is not the next beauty pageant answer to what we want most of the world. He's talking specifically to God's people. And he is saying that the peace that Jesus brings, the peace that Jesus is the peace that has reconciled you to God is the peace that brings you together. As long as you go on, and this is what's happening in the church now. If you read anything online and you listen to all the discussions going on or you try to keep up with it, and I can only keep up with such a small part of it, but if you try to keep up with it, what is happening now is this idea of people constantly trying to talk about the discord and the strife and all the troubled, heart, troubled hearts and tribulation in the church. And what you, if you distill it all down, what people keep saying is, if you would just agree with me as to what peace looks like, then it will all be okay. That's what it all is. If you and I could just agree that peace looks like exactly what I say it looks like, then everything will be okay. But do you realize that that in itself is a statement of self-worship? If we're going to love our neighbor as ourself, we would be worshiping ourselves and then having to worship our neighbor, which doesn't work because believing that peace can come in the way that I talk about it and if you would just agree with me, then it would be okay, is a statement of self-worship. The peace that we more often see in the church and we're reading about now and all the conflicts and things that are going on is more akin to the peace of a detente. Do you know what a detente is? A detente is when two parties, two countries, two governments, so to speak, agree to not blow each other up. They don't like each other. They don't have anything good to say about each other. We'll blog about each other. We'll tweet about each other. Your way is stupid. We'll find different ways to make other people feel like someone else shouldn't be listened to, but we won't kill each other. And we'll say we have peace. That's not the peace that Jesus is for those that he has made peace between by reconciling them to God and to one another. That is the fruit of the very hostility that he went to the cross to kill. That's not peace. So you and I can't be a part of a serious gospel church if we're not serious about the peace that Jesus is for us and one another. So let me ask you a few questions that were challenging to my own heart this week as I was considering this. Who in the church are you trying to keep your distance from? Who in the church are you trying to avoid? Who are you hoping that you won't run into around town? Whose presence makes you feel awkward because of some painful history? To whom might you owe an apology in the church? No one has summed up these implications more clearly for me recently. Than Ray Ortland in his book on the gospel. He said, If we love the gospel of reconciliation, which is a fruit of the peace that Jesus is, can we let any relational breakdown go on without at least trying to reconcile? And if we're unwilling to try, then let's just admit it. We're trifling with God. We are, in practice, denying the gospel. You and I prove our sincerity about the vertical gospel of peace and reconciliation through our willingness to move toward the horizontal relationships that need it. Maybe that person or that church or that group won't listen to you, but still we must try and we might find ourselves surprised at how God blesses our imperfect but prayerful effort. He is our peace that brings us near, that reconciles us to God, that brings us together. Will we make every effort prayerfully in light of who he is to live that way with one another? He is our peace. And he intends for his disciples then and his disciples now, you and I, to experience an increasing measure of this peace right now in our life. There is a peace that is meant to mark God's people in the midst of both good and bad situations. A peace that's meant to steady troubled hearts, anchor souls in the midst of tribulation. He gets after this in verse 22 of John chapter 20. We don't have time to get into it in detail, but we'll get into it in the coming weeks. John says when Jesus had said this, when he had preached that sermon, he breathed on them. The Greek doesn't say on them. It just says he breathed. And quite literally, that word means a deep exhale. So he deeply exhaled. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Sounds weird. Some people all of a sudden think John doesn't agree with Luke about Pentecost. Was this an early Pentecost? Was this something different? This was just an object lesson. Much in the same way the prophets, God would have them do object lessons related to what he was having them declare. God had promised a day in which he would pour out his spirit on his disciples. Jesus had promised his disciples that after he left, he would give them his very spirit. The word pneuma is translated spirit and breath. Jesus is have a play on words right here and giving them an object lesson that what God had promised and what he had said is going to happen. And it did. Weeks later at Pentecost, Jesus would fulfill that promise and pour out his spirit and his disciples then would begin to experience and live in the reality of the peace that he is. Their fear would be replaced by boldness. Their tribulation would be marked with joy. They began to experience the peace of Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and you and I can too as well. See, a very real part of the work of God's spirit is the cultivation of this peace. It's the fruit of his presence and his activity in our heart and in our life. So we have to take a look at our heart and take a look at our circumstances and ask ourselves, are are we characterized, are we marked by this peace? Or are we more shaped by our circumstances? Ask yourself, when was the last time you responded to a circumstance with something other than peace? Last time you didn't get your way. Last time things didn't go the way you thought they should. Last time someone didn't agree with you on your definition of what should happen. Were you marked by peace? Or were you marked by irritability? Anxiousness. Do you dread the difficult days when you wake up knowing you're going to go into a situation where things are not going to go the way you want? May I mean, I'll be honest with you? 11 o'clock. I have no clock. All of us have various idolatries, so to speak, that our hearts cling tightly to. And we're all different by the way we're wired and the experiences that we've had. This is my battle. The thing when I fail to remember who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and the peace that he is, not only between myself and God, myself and him, myself and my own thoughts and myself and others, when I forget who he is and the work of his spirit in me, the thing that I pursue with all of my heart is this peace. It's not just that I need people around me to get along and be calm and cool. I need an inner peace in my soul. Anything that threatens to disrupt my own hakuna matata, I will avoid. Even if it means avoiding life itself. If it means avoiding people, if it means avoiding situations, anything that would disrupt that, I'll deal with it at all costs and in any way possible. And about a year ago, I read a quote by Virginia Woolf. Some of you might be familiar with her books. Virginia Woolf said, you can't find peace by avoiding life. And it hit me all of a sudden. I've been learning this about myself for like two years trying to figure it out. And it hit me all of a sudden. You can't find peace by avoiding life. The peace that my heart so desperately wants, the harmony, the equilibrium that my heart so desperately craves is only found in the one who is life, who is peace. And so considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we realize that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees a peace by God's spirit that takes all these different things that threaten to disrupt my equilibrium, threatens to make me feel out of control, threatens to make me feel like the harmony that I want so bad inside is going to go away. It takes all of those things and it puts them into the context The bigger picture of a God who loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me. Whose power is so great that he raised his son from the dead in victory over sin and death. A context where Jesus is alive and present with me by his spirit and will one day return just as he has promised to make right all that sin is vandalized, twisted, twisted, and shattered. Even that dark craving in my heart for a peace that doesn't come from him. Friends, he is our peace. And he preached peace to those who were far off, Paul said, and to those who were near. Friends, if you're here this morning and you would say that I know myself to be far off, stranger of this peace, Let me just ask you this morning, consider this, if you will, where do you currently get your peace and how do you make it last? If it's not Jesus, where do you get your peace and how do you make it last? He is the one, the only one to bring you near, to reconcile you to God, to bring you together with his people. He is peace. And to those who would say that they're near, who know by faith of God's goodness to them through his Son, let me just ask you to consider what things seek to draw your heart away from the peace that Jesus is? What things does your heart pursue in order to find that peace that it so desperately wants and needs? Friends, he is our peace. As we prepare to respond this morning, the musicians come up and take their places. I just want to read to you a story to close out our time. I read it this week. It was tremendously helpful for me in this whole idea. On December 26, 1944, the Japanese army sent 2nd Lieutenant Hiro Onada to the Philippine island of Lubang. His orders were to fight on indefinitely. Word never reached him several months later when World War II ended. For 30 more years, he went on fighting in the context of a war that existed only in his mind. He lived in hiding, he came out at night to steal food from villages, and he even shot at people now and then. Ten years into his hiding, he found a newspaper article about himself, but he thought it was a trick to get him to surrender. The Philippine government dropped leaflets into the jungle asking him to come out. They brought loudspeakers in and shouted to him, The war is over. One day, his own brother stood at the microphone and begged him to give up, but he wouldn't believe it. He fought on until 1974 when the Japanese government sent in his old commanding officer, Major Tanaguchi. He ordered Onada to surrender, and he finally gave up. This writer said that Onada was trapped in 1945, shut out. From the good news of peace, and he lost 30 years of his life hiding in jungles loyal to a lost cause. He said, You and I can be very much like him today when we allow our thoughts and our feelings to live our lives being trapped in a war that God ended a long time ago. The night Jesus was born, he said, the angels stepped up to the microphone and shouted, Peace on earth. And the night that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the grave, he stepped up to the microphone and said, Peace be with you. For 2,000 years, he said, God has been dropping leaflets of the good news into our jungles. Through his cross, and most specifically his resurrection, Jesus has won the victory. Peace, peace be with you. He is your peace isn't it time now to give up all of our ridiculous lost causes come out of hiding and start living in him he is your peace friends i'm going to pray for us and then we're going to respond to god's word this morning We're going to give you a couple of minutes to just reflect on what you've heard read, what you've heard said, to deal with God, to let him deal with you. And then we're going to remember and celebrate the peace that is ours. By the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead, by receiving communion, we're going to remember that he, he, not our strategy, not our wisdom, not our effort, he is our peace that reconciles us to God and brings us together with one another. And we'll sing and we'll be sent out here from this place as his people to live in the joy and peace that his resurrection guarantees. So let me pray for us and, and then we'll respond. Father, thank you that you have done everything, every ounce, everything necessary for us to be reconciled to you, to be brought near to you, to be made your child, that we might be brought together as your people. There's nothing left for us to do. You did it all. God, this morning we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the miracle of bringing those who are far off near to you by faith. That they would see your glory in the face and the work of your son. That those of us who have tasted of your goodness and of your grace, who, who by faith have thrown all that we are onto your son would cherish the peace that is ours in him. That we'd be able to put away all the pseudo pieces that our hearts go after and that we would find greater joy and satisfaction in him. We ask this morning that you would do that